welcome to the Artist Appeals. This is Erin Sparler and I'm your host. In the Artist Appeals, we interview artists, crafters, photographers, and business professionals about the business of art. I hope you'll join us and enjoy the show. In this episode of the Artist Appeals, we're going to talk to a gentleman that is not only an artist, but he's also an author illustrator, and fellow academic. He's a college professor, the illustration department coordinator at the University of New Haven, and he's also the art director and curator of the Spartan Museum of Art. He is currently working on and has an epic mythology that he has created, an epic series called Astro Mythos. His work is just outstanding. It's all gold leaf and informed with symbolism. Amazing work. So I'm excited to share with you the tips and tricks and some amazing techniques of John Sideriotis. All right. Hello, John. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm excellent. Now, John, you got to do me a favor right here at the beginning. You got to tell me how to say your last name and its origins. Everyone says it wrong. <laughs> but um, actually, only my astronomy teacher in college got it right because of the word sidereal, which has nothing to do with it. But still, I was happy. <laughs> it's S as in Sam, I-D-E-R-I-A-D-I-S. Uh-huh. Yeah? Yeah. Sidereadis. Okay. It's Greek. <laughs> Sideriadis. Did I get that right? Sideriadis. Sideriatus. Say that five times fast. Sideriatus. That's right. I I can't. (laughs) Awesome. It's Greek, huh? So are you from there or your family or? I'm a first generation Greek, so my my parents are from Greece. Oh, neat, neat. Have you been there? Several times. I uh, actually taught there too. I taught uh, in Rhodes. I taught painting and world building. Some of my college students and it was a lot of fun. I taught in a castle, and it was a great place for them to be because they were all big geeks like me mm-hmm. into mythology. And there was a Renaissance fair happening just that that very week. And so, anyway, yeah, totally, it's a beautiful place. Highly recommended, yeah. not just because I'm Greek. <laughs> no, it's on my bucket list. You know, every art history book pretty much starts in Greece. So, well, I always like to start the interviews by talking a little bit about backstory, but maybe in this case, we should talk just a little bit about what you do and where you came to be in this, this path. Because I, I, I saw your work at EluxCon, amazing, fabulous conference, you guys. So, so, so cool. And your work really resonated and spoke to me of some of those um, transitional periods in art from like the Byzantine and uh, you had some nature aspects, some kind of Druidism aspects going on and then some halos and gold leaf. And so some really neat stuff all combining with fantasy art. So can you talk a little bit about your backstory and about how you became a teacher, an illustrative teacher, but also this amazing artist. Well, you know, I went to art school, just like any other aspiring artist. Yeah. And I went to BU, actually, in Boston. Mm -hmm. And then one of my drawing teachers told me that 
that that wasn't really the school for me because I was drawing all these like mythological creatures and and all sorts of things that were more like illustrations, which they didn't mm. have there. So uh, she said, uh, her name is Margaret McCann, very, very awesome drawing teacher. She said that I should apply to RISD. So then I, I did and I got in as a film student actually, and I studied animation oh. for a year. Oh, and me then, too. Really? <laughs> Not RISD, but animation. Yeah, I went to the oh, yeah. Academy of Art College out in San Fran back in the day. That's a good school. So that's how it happened. Uh, I got into RISD. I started studying animation. And then I switched over to illustration because um, I decided I wanted to produce uh, 2D paintings and, and drawings and things. And animation really, really wasn't my thing. Mm. And then I went to grad school for illustration too. Did you, were you doing like stop motion or claymation or 3D? They almost had it all there. Uh, sand animation, puppet animation, yeah. stop motion. Yeah. We were doing like old school animation there. So like we were running the, the film through the little, you know, hoops. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, that big matrix, that, that big machine. And they would always bunch up on me and I got a big like, I would get a big dust ball or, you know, tumbleweed sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. In my face and I would have to untangle it. and uh, so frustrating. But yeah, we were making real actual cuts with scissors and, and oh, things I like did that, that and hanging college. them up. Yeah. I thought that was neat. I mean, it's so precise. We even did drawn on film, like where you had blank film and you had to draw on it. Did you ever do that? Yeah, we did that too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, we drew the little mouths uh, for you know speech sequences, and <laughs> that was tricky. But then, um, yeah, then I studied animation with some really brilliant teachers there, and I graduated from there with a BFA in illustration. Then I went to grad school mm-hmm. uh, at UHart, University of Hartford. Mm. And I um, studied illustration there and got my MFA in illustration. And it's um, at that point that I started teaching. There, there's, there's a lot of overlap, but um, I could start with the teaching first, the teaching well, origins. Just real quick, I want to hit on the, the idea that you went from video and animation and film back to two-dimensional. You know, I made a similar transition. So my MFA is in computer arts. And I just didn't find it gratifying. I, I felt like I worked so hard to make something that somebody would watch for like two seconds and then be like, oh, well, that was cool. What's next? What was it for you that took you from the virtual world to the two-dimensional world? Was there a moment? Was there a crisis? Was there an existential crisis? <laughs> yeah, to say the least. <laughs> there are many moments. Share. So, do tell. Tell us. For instance, um, I mentioned overlaps before. Um, my journey toward becoming a teacher sort of like crisscrosses and overlaps with my plan to produce a book and to build my own world and to write my own stories and, and design my own characters, which I originally wanted to. Well, I wanted that to become a film, mm-hmm. and I wanted to, you know, study directing and study animation and learn everything I could about film production mm-hmm. design. James Cameron is one of my heroes. Way back when he was working on Aliens mm. and. Uh, Battle Beyond the Stars and all those films. And I would, I would read about him when I worked in a bookstore and I said, you know, and and I would watch films like Willow and, and, you know, all those uh, old Mm. fantasy movies and all the animations, like the Rankin and Bass animations. (laughs) I said, I want to be a part of that. And I actually went out to LA and I I worked out there and I worked uh, with Patrick Totopoulos as a creature designer on building uh, maquettes and models and um, working with foam latex, sculpting. Mm gashes and things and, and making monsters for movies like Underworld, Evolution, oh, super cool. and Silent Hill. And I did 
actually learned how to use Photoshop working on promo material for Godzilla, the first, the one with Matthew Broderick, <laughs> which was pretty cool. So I got to see the big Godzilla head. I got to, you know, drive it in pieces over to the storage spaces in Burbank. <laughs> Don't drop it. Yeah, pretty much. It was it was big. It was like the size of <laughs> this room that I'm sitting in. Did you put it on? No, I'm just joking. I wish. <laughs> but it was, yeah, big enough to eat a human. That's for sure. Mm, sweet. So it was really neat and scary. And um, it was a, it was an awesome little time there for a couple of yeah. years that I worked out there. But then I decided it wasn't for me. I didn't feel right out there. Um, it was far away from home, you know, because I'm from Connecticut and yeah. all my friends and family are there. And yeah. um, I wanted to produce my own IP or intellectual property, my own stories, my own characters. So I decided maybe I should you know, study something else and maybe I should write a book. Maybe should, I can you know, be a comic book artist or graphic novelist, mm-hmm. or maybe I can make an illustrated novel that's, that's new and, and refreshing and unique and that brings something new to the fantasy and sci-fi world as a mm-hmm. mythology. Because I always love yeah. mythology since I'm Greek. You know, my mom used to read mythology books to me before bed when I was little. And Aww. I really, so cool. it's, it's a part of my <laughs> upbringing. age appropriate, but. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much. I think she would leave certain parts out <laughs> until I got older. And then I went off on a big tangent there, but just because okay. all these things were overlapping. So I finished my degree in illustration, and then I started looking for jobs as a freelance illustrator on these new websites like like ifreelance.com. Mm-hmm. But this is way back in like 2000, 2007. Yeah. When those were just becoming popular, those like guru.com and ArtStation. I, should yeah, that was I don't new... think ArtStation was out yet at all. That was a new thing. So I took advantage of that and I found some jobs. Uh, I finally, after applying a million times, uh, sending out hundreds of applications, I finally heard back from an RPG creator that, that was making an old school RPG called Wayfarers. The company was Ye Old Gaming Company. And RPG is ro- role player game, right? For those of our oh listeners. yeah yeah, who like are not uh, geeks like us, <laughs> like Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a total geek too. I gotta admit it. Yeah, I'm a DM, so <laughs> I'm a big big geek. Always have been. Always been a big board gamer, tabletop gamer, and video gamer. Mm. And that's why I wanted to get into illustration because I could learn in class how to design characters and how to design environments and levels and yeah, you know, all sorts of things, portraiture and covers. And, yeah, do what you love, right? Well, how did you end up being a teacher then? So you wait, you you get this gig with this guy, and what happened? So I got a gig with him. I got a gig with someone else, and then I did I worked on a sci-fi book called Sunshine Republic about robots. It was a sci-fi book. Then I got you know a, a job here, a job there, and I, yeah. I built a portfolio um, and a resume that that had published credits on it, and mm. so I got more work through that, and uh, I started. Going to conventions and selling uh, prints of of work that I work that I did for these jobs and things and for my myself for my mm-hmm. own book and all the while I was working on sketches and this started in the year two thousand in high school actually working on sketches and and little you know story um, elements and writing little plot lines down and uh, character development entries and passages in my sketchbook so my sketchbooks were were half sketches half writing half story. Yeah. Every page, uh, every page spread was like maybe one illustration on the the left and the story on the right, almost yeah, like so a, a bestiary. Kind of created this type of art. Yeah, I always uh, had this 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 wild imagination. I think I get it from my grandma, uh, my dad's mother, and uh, I was always coming up with my own stories, my own characters. I was telling my friends' stories, even when I was little. Very cool. And uh, I knew that I had a knack for storytelling, which is why I, w- I wanted to 
try to go into film. But um, then I decided, hey, maybe you know I could create my own story. And Tolkien is my hero, as you might imagine. <laughs> so that's that's one of the reasons uh, to answer your question why I became a teacher. But he also developed his own world, his own mythology, and his own uh, vocabulary. His own, yeah. And there's that too. He's just he's brilliant. And um, yeah, yeah, he was all his over messages. The map. Just his uh, his his writing style is just brilliant. So that led me to teaching. Because uh, a few years after college, when I was freelancing and I was you know, working odd job to odd job, I, I've, I've done all, all sorts of crazy jobs that even were not even related at all to art. <laughs> uh, I decided to go to grad school. Yeah. And in grad school, that's when I started teaching. Okay. So the teaching element was a part of the curriculum, huh? Well, not at uh, my grad school. It was the low residency program in illustration oh, okay. at UHART. It was just, you know, it was, it was meant for um, full-time parents and, and people who work full-time because uh, we only met like five weeks out of the year. Oh, nice. Sometimes in different parts of the country where we'd meet illustrators and we would uh, do projects and we would see their studios. They would come talk to us. And then a couple oh, weeks every cool. summer at the actual campus where yeah. teachers from all over the country would, would come teach us. These award-winning illustrators would come teach us. And, um, and when I was studying there, I think only one other person in the class was my age. Everyone else was like twice my age or like 10, 20 years older than me. Mm-hmm. So it was really difficult to like bring my work up to their level because they had been already freelancing for 20 years, maybe 10 years, and I'd only been doing it for like three. And I was only tw- 25, Challenge. 26. So uh, it really pushed me, to ch- uh, pushed me to increase the quality of my work. And uh-huh. I actually, it was my idea to, to teach there. I, I talked to the assistant dean of the school and he gave me a chance. I just proposed the class called Art and Myth. This is mm-hmm. basically a sci-fi fantasy world building course. And he mm-hmm. said, sure, why not? Um, we can do like a, like a test run this winter and you can teach it in the winter. And uh, that, I did that and they loved it. Wow, that's and really uh, cool. it turned so into a full semester course. Opportunity. Right. Brilliant. I that's love how it works. It. <laughs> that's how, that's it how it is. what you have to do. I tell my students that all the time. You have to make your own opportunities. You have to get out there and talk to people. And you have to uh, do whatever it takes, everything you can to get jobs and to, to just become an illustrator. I think that's fabulous advice. You really do. You have to ask for it over and over again. You have to make your own opportunities. Did you have to do right. a write-up for the course? I did. I wrote up the entire syllabus. <laughs> right. And I had so no idea to how to do, do it. So you have to do work, too. Right. You've got to actually do the research, do the work. You've got to make the proposal. You know, nobody's going to hand it to you. I bet you must have been scared that first time around, huh? Definitely, because every time you do something like that, it's a big risk. It's a it's a time investment. It's a money investment. You have to research. You have to ask people how to do it. You have to ask other teachers how to do it. Luckily, there were some mm-hmm. teachers in my class in grad school, and I and asked them how they wrote their syllabi. Yeah. So I sort of based it on that. Yeah. But yeah, it was a little a little terrifying because I had never <laughs> taught before. But actually, the idea, the notion of teaching, came to me when I was mowing the lawn. <laughs> And I was thinking about, okay, how can I get this book out, out there? I need to come up with a plan. And yeah. I'm like, wait a minute, I have to write a thesis and paint some paintings for my you know, senior, my, my final show in grad school. Uh-huh. So I decided that a thesis would be my plan for publishing my book and, and starting, starting to write it or starting to you know, compile my drawings and writings and, in a form of a book. Because before oh, that, great. I just had a bunch of like, you know, notebooks and, and pieces of paper and a shoebox mm-hmm. and and then I decided... Sometimes you have to give yourself a reason. You have to give right. yourself a deadline or 
tie it in with something else. If you want to make something happen. Right. Those self-imposed deadlines um, are the hardest thing to get used to doing and to setting it down in your schedule when you, when you graduate school. Because once you're done with school, there's no structure. There's no teachers to, to tell you what to do, to give you deadlines, yeah. to keep you on track, to email you. It's just all you. Um, yeah. So you're in sort of a vacuum and you have to um, you navigate your way through that by disciplining yourself. And, yeah, by and that can be really hard for artists, you know? I, I definitely think that artists struggle with that because it's so easy to be like, oh, well, this needs done first. Or I need right. to do that first. You know, I recently learned a technique of giving yourself not only goals, but rewards. Do you ever do that? Where, you know, so you want to create something. So you want to create some art, right? And you want to create a product. Like, so your art is your, your vision. But your product is really your prints of your art and this book that you've been working on, right? Right. So do you ever um, give yourself like little goals and then rewards for hitting those little goals to help with that vacuum? Yeah, I do. <laughs> um, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Mm-hmm. But uh, the reward is someone like you who came up to me at Luxcon and, and said, I love your work. That makes it all worth it. Oh, thank you. It's gorgeous. Thank you. <laughs> Working so hard on something and trying to capture like the essence of the first concept or thought that came into your mind and sort of like recreate it on paper yeah. with paints and with a pencil, uh, it's very hard to do. It's very hard to make a magical, evocative piece that that really like speaks to someone. So that's my reward yeah. when someone um, when it does that does just that. It speaks to someone, and someone comes up to me and they tell me exactly how it makes them feel. And if that matches what I set out to do with the piece or the meaning of the piece, then then that's the reward. Mm. Yeah, let's talk just real briefly about um, some of your processes that you use to do that. Let's digress into the techniques just a smidgen, if you would. Is there a specific process you use to help capture those images? Because that really is, I think, the core of what so many artists are trying to do. We're all trying to find this vision and and put this vision from our head onto paper, right? Walk us through it. What's your process? That's a complicated one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, you teach whole classes on it, right? Yeah. I mean, right now, uh, for instance, I could go on and on about how I got here. Um, it was yeah. a long, long, long road about, yeah. of about like nine years. But uh, right now, I'm the coordinator of the illustration department at University of New Haven. Right. So I'm teaching drawing classes. I'm teaching illustration classes. I'm teaching world building, concept art, digital mm. illustration, pretty much everything uh, that has to do with 2D art and illustration. Yeah. And that all goes into it. And yeah. I had to learn how to do all of that in order to produce my own work and create or establish my own brand, mm-hmm. produce my own promotional work, uh, material and, and mm-hmm. so on. But uh, the creative process actually started in college when I went to go, uh, went to the, um, the science museum, the Boston Science Museum, and I saw uh, an image of a nebula. Mm. And I saw- I made a 3D model of a nebula one time for a, Ooh, that's for cool. a company. <laughs> I, like, I want to see that. <laughs> oh, it was horrible. It was back in the day in the early 2000s. So by now it's just, uh, you know what I mean? That stuff moves so quickly. Anything you make in 3D is just outdated within six months. But you Yeah, know, that's the thing. Part of what I'm doing here is, is we talk about art and making art and finding your voice. And then we talk about building a product from your artwork. And then we talk about how to present it. And then we talk about educating people with it, you know? And right. 
automating and, and outreach and then licensing and success. And really, your series of classes are bundling all that together. But there hasn't been a really good system, a systematic system that we teach in the educational institutions that walks you through this process, the seven-step process of making art, turning it into products so you can make money, presenting it, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess my question to you is, you had this video training and this film training, and obviously you must have learned storyboarding, right? Mm -hmm. And then you also had this background in drawing and journaling, illustrating, right? Right. And then you just mentioned that you make your own products and pieces. You're making your own book. You also make your promotional material. Can you really quickly, in 60 seconds or less, talk us through how one piece might evolve and go through that process? Like sketch like one painting, right? To, yeah, yeah. Like, do you look at your journals and go, okay, this piece, I'm going to turn this into a painting. And then, mm. you know what I'm saying? Do you sketch it multiple times? And then you turn it into a painting, and then the painting becomes a print. Walk us through how you take your art, build your art up, and turn it into a product. Uh, do you mean um, a personal piece or a commission? Hmm. There's Whichever a, bit, there's a big difference, yeah. <laughs> oh, let's talk commission first. A commission first is easy because uh, oftentimes the client will send me a sketch. Like I'm working on um, something right now, and um, mm -hmm. I got a sketch, and I can't say uh, much else about it, but... And then I just, you know, take Ooh, that sketch and do my own thing with it. <laughs> NDAs, yeah. <laughs> Usually I'll sign a non-disclosure agreement and then I'll send them a contract and they'll look it over. We'll both sign it. We'll write an invoice. Uh, sorry, I'll write an invoice and I'll send it to them. And then I'll start working on the project and I'll start with, you know, just it's the first thing I, I start my intro to illustration students off with, which is a thumbnail sketch, which is a little baby sketch, like about, you know, an inch tall, maybe two inches by two inches. And then I just sketch out the composition, which is the most important part of the piece, where I want the characters to be, where I want the environment to be located, or, or you know, where I want the characters to interact in the, within the composition. Mm -hmm. And then I'll take that thumbnail sketch and I'll scan it into the computer. Mm -hmm. And then I'll blow it up to a bigger size, maybe like a letter size or 9 by 12 or something. Mm -hmm. And then I'll, I'll um, print it out. And either cover the back uh, with a graphite stick, or put graphite transfer paper down, and then transfer it to um, a better, uh, like better paper, mm -hmm. like a canvas, or to something else rather than my sketchbook, like Br uh, Bristol vellum paper, which is this nice, smooth mm. drawing paper. I know it. I like it. Oh yeah, that's my favorite. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it. and then I'll uh, work on the drawing, and then I'll build up the drawing. I'll, I'll send you know the the thumbnail and or the sketch for approval first. And then if I get approval, then I'll build up the drawing. Okay. Yeah. You get a sign off on that. It, it, it all depends what, uh, what the medium is. And I use uh, pretty much every medium, mm -hmm. um, depending on the job. This current one is pen and ink. Mm -hmm. So it stops with a Bristol paper. I can do the finished piece on Bristol paper um, to be later vectorized in Illustrator or something like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, if I'm drawing an oil painting or an acrylic wash painting or watercolor or, or a combination of those, Mm -hmm. Then I'll take the drawing and I'll scan in the drawing, which is on that Bristol paper, mm -hmm. into the computer. Many illustrators uh, use a, a technique, a similar technique. And then I'll print out the drawing onto Fabriano soft press watercolor paper. Mm. And then I'll use Liquitex matte medium to mount it to uh, a sanded board of MDF that I have cut 
a little smaller than the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. I'll roll some brayers over it to flatten it out and to make sure that the piece is glued down to the board. And then mm-hmm. I'll uh, cut all the edges off flush to the board of the paper. Mm-hmm. That's why you know I, I usually cut the board smaller. Yeah. And then I'll just start painting on the board with watercolor or whatever I need. And I could still draw on it and erase because it's it's watercolor paper. So, you know, yeah. it receives the pencil really well. But I don't have to redraw the image and I can make it bigger. And it's still the exact same image that I drew by hand with graphite. Right. So it, it's a very, very good time-saving tool for me or, yeah. te- or part of my technique. Yeah. And then um, if I'm, I'm working with oil or something, I simply, you know, um, use the same material I use to glue the paper to the board, which is a Liquitex matte medium. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll seal my uh, paper with that. And at that point, I can either paint with oils over it because the paper's protected. Mm-hmm. I can um, draw with colored pencil mm-hmm. uh, because it's almost like drawing on a fresh sheet of paper, even if there's colored pencil underneath that shield mm-hmm. of Liquitex matte medium. Or I can just, you know, keep layering it and then seal every, every successive layer before moving on to the next phase. Ooh, you seal every layer. Ooh, interesting. Cool. It's a water media piece. I forgot the last part. Yeah. If, I, if it's a water media piece, I seal it with uh, K-A-M-A-R, Kamar varnish. Uh-huh. And then if it's an oil piece, I seal it with Gamvar, hmm. which is a brushable varnish that you have to brush on uh, really thin mm. with multiple coats. Otherwise, you get streaks. Hmm. Very cool. And then how do you get it back in for prints? You photograph it? Do you lay it flat, hang it on a wall, light it? Do you scan it? When it's dry, you know, absolutely dry, so I don't ruin my scanner or the scanner at school. <laughs> Sometimes I go into school to scan and print, but... They have big ones? They have big ones. That's why I go, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have the nice ones. <sighs> so I scan, I, I scan it in. Uh, if there's raised, uh, you saw some of those at Eluxcon, the raised gilded pieces yeah. uh, with the embellishments and the 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 gilding that's that's raised and more sculptural. Yeah. Those I have to photograph. Yeah, because you're going to get some glare from that gold, right? Right. Or I can put them um, into the mat uh, so that there's a barrier and the, the gold leaf is sort of set into the um, into the mat. You know what I mean? And then you scan it. You can scan it like yes, that too. it's recessed. It's recessed, yeah. And uh, the other thing I, I should mention is I do my own framing and matting too. Okay. So that the final product, the final original painting that I, I intend to sell at these conventions like Eluxcon is a really well presented. And uh, the, color of the, the color of the mat, the style of the frame, and everything really complements the piece and suits the piece. Because you don't always get that when, when you take it to a, a framer. And right. they don't always have the, all the mats you need and all the, all the frames that you'd like um, them to cut and and you know assemble for you and so I just started doing it on my own to save money and I found I found it to be really fun and it's not that hard it's it's a lot easier than than people think it is yeah and you can get better materials online than for less a lot less money you can save a lot of money I've I've done matting and framing in my work as well and yeah I mean you can buy a box of archival full size mats for a lot less than you can buy one mat at the store, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, that that is great because that brings us right into presentation. I mean, you've just walked us through art, into product, into presentation, which I love. And you hit on all those contracts. You know, I think that that's one point that we don't convey well enough in the educational systems to students and people don't understand is the contracts 
the contracts that are really, really important. You know, you talked about an NDA for you guys that maybe uh, were going, what was an NDA acronym? Acronym, a non-disclosure agreement it means you can't talk about what you're painting. Why do we have those in art? Why do you do them? Those are signed whenever you start an art project or when you um, sign a contract with a book publisher. And um, that's so that all the material is kept secret and protected so that no one else steals it. Because the more the more money that's put into a project um, and the more famous it is and the more groundbreaking it is, the more dangerous it is uh, to companies that are working with you um, who want to try to put out the first version of it or make the, f- that, the first breakthrough right. book. Or, and you as the artist, you want to be very careful of that because you don't want to, you know, and you, want, you don't want there to be a breach, breach of contract because that's bad for your reputation and that's not the right thing to do. Right. And that's the bottom line. Um, these companies want to protect their, their intellectual properties and, and their, you know, their brand and their ideas. And uh, right. they, don't, they don't want competing companies to, to use them. But then how do you promote yourself as an artist? That creates a quandary because you want to be able to talk about what you're doing as an artist so that you can get more gigs, right? How do you work with that? You mean under an NDA? Well, like, do you make sure that there's a little clause in there that says that you can promote it after it's released? Or, you know what I mean? Yeah, there's always a little clause in my contracts that states that um, exactly where, when, and how I can promote my work and how they can promote. Whenever they post my work, for instance, they have to give me credit and um, indicate who the artist was who did this, wherever it appears. Good, yeah. Yeah, there's there's always a clause in there about that there has there should be a clause for for pretty much every situation. That's why mm-hmm. it's so hard to write contracts, and that's why eventually um, I got an attorney mm-hmm. to start writing contracts for me. Especially um, when I sat down with my editor and co-author and said we need to write up a contract. Um, I couldn't just write one up myself because I'm not an attorney or lawyer. I I, I needed a professional. Yeah, who really knew what he was talking about to um, really put all those clauses in there. And uh, flesh out every situation. Mm-hmm. A good lawyer is worth their weight in gold. I, I, I really do believe it. It's hard to find a good art lawyer as well, I think. You know, I have a um, lawyer that is in the craft and copyright field, and she's just phenomenal. But I've talked to other lawyers that don't really understand the field. How did you find your attorney? Uh, same place. <laughs> same place I found you. <laughs> Conferences. Which was nice and convenient. Conferences, yeah. Yeah, they're some of the best places to network, right? I tell my students that, like a broken record. <laughs> Every chance I get, I say, go to conventions. Are you going to this? Are you going to that? Go to network. Bring your portfolio. You're going to meet people. And some of them actually listen to me, which is nice. <laughs> Occasionally uh, they do. Him. Yeah, that's always, that's always good when they do. That's where I met him. His name is Seth Polanski. And mm-hmm. um, he's a you know brilliant lawyer, an awesome person. We have... Uh, a lot in common. And that's that's probably why I met him there, because he is sort of like intertwined with the, the, the Wizards of the Coast and the Magic the Gathering world. Yeah. And that's where he does, uh, that's where he films at LexCon. Mm. Magic the Gathering games that are either played by, you know, visitors or guests, but that are also recorded uh, alongside the artists so that the artists can come in and talk about the cards that are being used and how they painted them. And I met him actually through Chris Kotsakis, who is the uh, director of um, Artisticon. Mm. 
along with his uh, his buddy Sean. It's a small circle. All these people know each other, and uh, yeah. Chris is also Greek, you know, and uh, the Greeks uh, stick together, and they they're really <laughs> good networkers. And he's a good friend of mine now, so yeah, he got me in touch with him, and now you know Seth and I are you know really really close, and you know, I know his wife, and she's she's just as great as him, and yeah, he's he's a um, an illustrator and author lawyer. A, a lawyer for either just illustrators or authors and illustrators. Right. So it just organically happened. And he happened to you know, really, really know his stuff. And he really uh, figured out a, a solution for both me and Raphael Vega, who's my co author. Yeah. So that we're you know, a compromise, so that we're both happy. That's the point of a good contract, right? It was worth it, it too. <laughs> both parties. I think. I think artists are scared sometimes of contracts because they think that they're there to benefit the big guy, but they're there to protect both parties, right? Right. I mean, it's so important. Licensing, contracts, contractual terms, they're there to protect both parties and to make both sides feel happy and safe and to clearly define the expectations. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is so cool. Yeah, you know, lawyers go to conferences looking for clients as well. So if they go there too. That's how I met my attorney is, was at um, what used to be called CHA, the Craft and Hobby Association Mega Show. It's now called uh, Creativation. But oh. yeah, yeah, she picked me up on a bus. <laughs> nice. Okay, there you go. <laughs> it looks like we have a lot in common. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. So we've talked about art, we've talked about product and presentation. We even hit a little bit on licensing here, but let's talk about educating your audience and automating and amplifying because I think all artists want to know how do I get quote unquote I'm doing air quotes here, you can't see me. Exposure, right? And exposure is a tricky term because I don't think it really is a thing. <laughs> I think educating your audience as to the benefits of your work with story. So telling stories around your work and communicating with the people that are interested in it is the most important marketing you can do. So what have you found to be the hardest part of marketing? And can you offer any tips or tricks about how you communicate and tell these stories? Because your work is full of visual stories. How do you, how do you communicate that with your audience? Marketing is, is is extremely difficult. Give my students a little advice on being illustrators and uh, living their lives as illustrators. I I always say that illustration is fifty percent art and fifty percent business. Mm. They're not going to like those numbers. Nope. <laughs> they think it's ninety percent art and maybe a little bit business. But now some of them are even considering um, studying business as a minor. Oh, I think that's smart because that that contributes to success. My dad. Ran his own uh, auto shop, auto repair shop cool. uh, in Meriden, Connecticut. And um, I think that's where I got my entrepreneurial skills from uh, because mm. he would always give me advice on how to improve my brand and how to get out there. And, and um, he would give me suggestions um, nice. as to where, like, where to go and uh, what, what to do with my work, uh, who to talk to, how to network, how to, um, what, what to say. Like a, oh, yeah. something as simple as what, how to talk to people about your work. And um, that really helped me. Yeah. Give um, us not everyone example. has that, but. What's the best piece of advice you ever got about talking about your work? 
The best piece of advice I got and that I give to my students, especially during critiques, is never say anything bad about your work or, or wait for someone else to talk about it and then just nod your head and say, yep, that was intentional. <laughs> that is a great piece of work. That is, a And really then just write that down and <laughs> actually do it in another piece. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was at a conference from a salesman. He said, you know, you should just say to them when they have your piece in their hand, first of all, put it in your hand. And then the second thing he said was, you just look at him and you say, can I wrap that up for you? Can I write that up for you? Can oh, I ring okay. that up for you? Any variation of that'll do, you know? And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, you have to ask for the sale, but you don't have to be sleazy about it. You just put it in their hand and say, can I wrap that up for you? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Can I wrap that up for you? So, yeah. You know, it's really hard, but you can make it simple. Right. And there's all sorts of things, for instance, at a LuxCon or a Gen Con, a FairyCon, all these sorts of conventions that I go to, that specific things that I learned along the way by trial and error. Like, you have to be excited about your work when you're talking about it. A lot of my students um, talk about their work, but they have their head down and they don't. I mean, I did the same thing when I was in college. And they don't really seem excited about their work or they say, yeah. I don't want to talk about it. And then... I just move on to the next piece or something. I come back to them. But if you're not excited about your work, then how are other people supposed to get excited about it? That's what yeah. I tell them when they do something like that. Yeah. And they see the excitement. And people tend to mirror each other's uh, you know, dispositions and, and things like that. So True. when you're excited about your work, then the person who walks by, someone passerby comes to see your work, they'll get excited too. Yeah. Not everyone has this. Not everyone does this because not every illustrator is a, a world builder and an author and a storyteller. But what I do to market my work is I just share my stories with people when they walk by. And I have my big wall of characters and scenes and pretty much uh, like a big visual array of my book is on the wall at these conventions. So whenever I'm yeah. talking about something, I can just point to it and say, this character did this, this, this character has this relationship with that character and this is the first this or this is the first that this is the first yeah. star this is the first comment and they can actually see the characters and and making that connection between what i'm saying and and what the character looks like and, and the interesting paintings yeah. um, really helps me you know connect with people and of course you know it helps with uh you know marketing my brand and my and my story to, mm -hmm. to get it out there you know in front of people's eyes and the the stories that I tell, which I, I didn't think they'd they'd help with marketing and marketing at all when, when I was in college and just sketching in my sketchbook, but all these little stories and and things that went into my book and and the fact that I made my own world helped me develop my own style and um, gave me a, a strong unique voice that really stands out. Yeah, and it helped me with marketing because there's a story behind each and every single thing I paint. Yeah, and it's not most of my paintings are are for my book. Right. Most of the things I put up are they're not commissions. Um, they're they're just illustrations that are going into my book. So there's something to say for each and every one of them. And people yeah. really connect with my with my characters because they're like you know they remind them of the Greek gods and how the Greek gods are human. Yeah, and Very um, everyone, yeah, everyone can can relate to those stories. And for the same reason, I've I've come to to know that people respond to my stories. You know, story is, is one of our core, you know, it goes all the way back to caves, cave art. We told stories visually, and I think people just connect with stories. And you guys might be listening and saying, well, how do I tell a story around my work? 
well, I don't have a story in my work. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm finding more and more that you can tell a story around anything. I heard a great interview on NPR the other day with a woman who was a writer for the Metropolitan Museum of Art for like 20 or 30 years. She's written a book where she looks at these pieces of art and makes a story around them about a chair that's all roped off and you can't sit on and how it's lonely or about um, the statue of David that fell off its pedestal after, you know, years and years and years of being immobile and shattered. Um, and those moments that what it might have felt like to be in the air. And they're inanimate objects. They're, they're pieces of art. But we can tell a story around art, I really do think, that makes people connect with it. So, um, yeah, you've got to find that story. That's a good storyteller right there. <laughs> right. Someone who could tell a story just by seeing, uh, you know, something on the ground. <laughs> I was at uh, Mystic Aquarium uh, the other day in Connecticut, and yeah. I uh, I was watching this little baby turtle trying to make it from from one lily pad um, across this great expanse of nothing in the yeah. pond to another lily pad, and a little baby fish was following him <laughs> for no reason, just like under his shadow. Yeah, and uh, I was I was coming up with a story for that. That, that, that sounds like a Disney book movie. Story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like Nemo or something. Yeah. And, um, that's what I tell my students. I tell them like ideas are everywhere. Like you got to be a sponge. And at the museum today, we were talking about um, the artwork and coming up with stories and ideas uh, and not, not even reading the descriptions yet, but just coming up with our own interpretations and f- mm-hmm. with free association. Right. And um, what museum we came were up with all sorts at? of great ideas. It was the, um, the Yale uh, Gallery, the Yale University Gallery, the one right next to the Yale British Museum of Art. Mm-hmm. And we were in the uh, Indonesian section. Mm. Looking at all the Indonesian masks and sculptures and, and pieces of jewelry from you know two thousand years ago, wow! Preserved trophy skulls from battles and things like that. And, and we sat down and uh, we we drew drew these things. Yeah. Um, after I took them out for coffee, and so they were really inspired. And uh, these are drawing. These are my drawing one students, okay. and I told them this this is where um, a drawing goes. This is this is what a drawing becomes. It starts with a drawing, but it ends with a piece of jewelry or a sculpture or a painting. Or we're looking at you know, Mondrian's and Juan Miro's oh, and uh, Renoir's and, and all sorts of things, even like Nick Cave's uh, sound uh, sound costumes. Oh, I love that. That is so deep. This is where art starts, but this is where it goes. Oh, that's so cool. Go on. <laughs> I want to go to this oh, museum yeah. <laughs> and draw now. <laughs> it's just amazing. And, and I told my illustrator, that my illustration majors that were in the class, I told them to start taking pictures, you know, get a database of reference photos so that you can Use these these interesting things that you know you can't find on Google in your artwork. You can yeah. make characters out of these. You can take photographs of the textures on certain sculptures and, and turn those into environments and landscapes. Mm. This is where I get my ideas. This is where you should be getting your ideas because that's where great unique ideas come from. And they really respond to it because they're out there in the cold and they get into the you know the the warmth of the museum and then they mm-hmm. see all these beautiful things and um, they just it sort of dilates their their mind a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I will never forget one of my drawing classes as an undergrad going into like a an arboretum. Am I saying that right? Like a oh, arboretum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and just having them, they had us draw plants and stems and leaves. And then another class, they took us to just a beautiful building on campus and had us draw the interior architecture. So there are so many resources. I really think you have to draw from life. It's been my goal with all these interviews, all the research I've been doing, my whole academic career, to figure out 
how to make money with your art. And I imagine that that's probably what you're trying to do too, right? We all want to do something that we love for a living. Yeah? Totally. Who wouldn't? Who wants a dead-end job? So, after all this research and all these interviews, I've discovered four secrets, the four top secrets to making money with your art. And now I have a 12-page report outlining the four top secrets to making money with your art. You can download this guide for free at howtomakemoneywithyourart.com. That's right, I got that domain name. So just head on over to howtomakemoneywithyourart.com, all spelled out, no numbers, and get your free report on how to make money with your art. So even though you're a fantasy artist, you really use references, huh? Yeah. Drawing from life is right. I mean, that's that's where it starts. Most students don't want to use references because they either think you know, references are for people who don't know how to draw or they're too lazy. Or it's cheating. Or they just want to rub up on their phone and or it's cheating. <laughs> yeah. So I say, you got to use reference. every. Uh, that's another broken record thing I say to my students every day. I say, more references, five to 10 references for every object, every part of the, the piece, every piece of clothing, every pose. And I like we that. go to the, five to the Rockwell Museum, for instance. Yeah. The, sorry. No, five to 10. I love that. I, I love the little statistics. I'm, I'm a big fan of you know numbers. And <laughs> then you'll like the next part because we went to the Rockwell Museum last yeah. year for uh, Dennis Nolan's uh, Keepers of the Flame exhibit. Mm. Dennis and I are good friends. And, you know, I, I taught with him at UHart when I first started teaching. But, and he was kind enough to give us a free tour. And we, uh, we went down to the, archi- uh, the archives where one of the uh, employees of the museum showed us a collection of his reference photos, of Rockwell's reference photos, and uh, showed us the painting and, and mm. the drawing he did for a specific piece. And then she said, these are his reference photos. There's, there's about 100 of them for this painting. Hmm. And I looked at my students and they all looked at me and they you know, <laughs> gave me the stink eye. And I was like, see? Did you say your next assignment is to do 100? <laughs> oh, no, I yeah, the, I, I joke about things like that. But um, that's one thing that I'll never forget. And that's one thing that I tell um, all sorts of students, um, even students, new students that, haven't, that weren't there at the time that I have coming in now, you know, as freshmen or sophomores. And mm-hmm. It's just absolutely important to use reference photos and to take all sorts of photos to travel, which is why I took my students to Greece. And they still, oh, cool. like one of my students, Sarah Zunda, who lives right here in New Haven, who uh, designed my website, awesome illustrator. She emailed me the other day to thank me for, you know, being her teacher and taking her to Greece because, you know, I feel like it really expanded her horizon and, and her uh, creativity. Heck yeah. And her visual language, and uh, just being on Mount Olympus, which is uh, one one place we went to, or being in one of the original Olympic stadiums, or in, you know now they go to the very labyrinth uh, where the they said the the fabled Minotaur lived. It's just like it's it's mind blowing and it expands um, your game yeah. significantly. Yeah. And I think these are the things that, that I always say. Traveling is is um, like fuel for the, for the artist. It's yeah. like you need to refuel refuel uh, your creativity and your, your tank of creative juice with travel and with, you know, things you see at museums. Right. 
And by just, you know, simply if you can't get out there and you can't afford it or whatever, you just take reference photos, uh, build a reference photo database, walk around, notice things like notice how little bubbles form on your hand, like in the shower when, when you have the soap or notice how there's a little mushrooms that grow on trees only when it rains and then mm-hmm. they just shrivel up and disappear um, like they weren't even there. Yeah. And notice everything around you and you know, put down your phone, you know, start being a, a, an artist, you yeah. know, and, and not, not a, just like a slave to social media. Yeah. Now I have to get into the technical aspect here. I, I got to go, I got to go geek on you here. So how do you organize your database. So you mentioned like create a visual database of references. And, you know, we've got sketches, we've got sketchbooks. I'm kind of the old school. Like I've got my sketchbooks. I've got a whole, I've got shelves and shelves of them in the basement. You know, I love my journals. I'm a total, like I test out journals all the time. I'm always looking for the best new art journal. But then you've got, you know, modern media. You've got photos on your iPhone and reference photos, like how do you recommend to your students? Do you have any tips or tricks or techniques for organizing all this? Because I know I'm already overwhelmed. It's very easy to become overwhelmed with all of the visual references you can get. What would you recommend? I started uh, organizing my files like about a year after college when I decided to go to grad school and start, you know, getting the ball rolling with my book. And yeah. it took me about a month. And I didn't want to do it at first. There was like, you know, that, that monomyth refusal of the call where I was like, eh, you know, I, I can't do this. This is too much work. And, the reluctant um, hero. Exactly. go on a journey, Luke. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, buy the book. And um, I spent a month doing it. I, I, I looked back on it. And I said, that took a long time. But if I didn't do this, it would take years and months more to write my book and to you know find and locate all, every little bit of story and information and character and drawing and sketch. Mm-hmm. And I did that both for my writings, all my little plot lines and my you know stories and my even two liners for characters and things like that. For all those and the, the artwork, every single little sketch, no matter how good or bad it was, every drawing, every painting. So what I would did cut you out do? the sketches from my like you know. Okay tests or, or, or worksheets from school and then just tape them all to, to the pages of my sketchbook. And Oh, you cut them out, you brave man. <laughs> okay, so you cut them out and then you made like a whole new book? And then um, I scanned all the, the images into my computer Okay. and put them into different folders. Mm. So those started off with folders like drawings, finished art, myths. Mm-hmm. poems, patterns, calligraphy, story ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then story ideas, I opened it up. And there's characters and costumes, just random reference photos, settings, dwellings, worlds, mm-hmm. uh, Byzantium. There's a whole folder on Byzantium. There's a whole folder on um, in my computer, illuminated manuscripts and those types of books. Mm-hmm. Um, and just filled with different um, images from my drawings and my journals and my writings and things. And uh, that's basically what I did. I just downloaded or uploaded everything to my computer on the uh-huh. desktop and then just like put everything in folders, organized everything, labeled everything. It took forever. Yeah. Um, I flagged all my journals. I flagged all the important pages before I scanned them in, mm-hmm. for instance. Like you put like a little tab. You said you flagged Yeah, like those them. little sticky notes. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Sorry, yeah. 
those little sticky notes that are like little flags about like a centimeter across, yeah, but really tall with yeah. a little arrow at the bottom. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. <laughs> and uh, so I have um, a folder for contracts, for illustrations, finished uh, drawings, finished illustrations, raw work, scanned pieces, scanned drawings. Mm-hmm. And it's that's it's pretty simple actually. It just takes a while. It just comes down to organizing everything into a specific folder. Yeah. But the most important part was organizing all my quotes, story ideas, character ideas into a specific folder so that every time I started a, a new chapter or story, I would read through that and right. then write the story just so I was, you know, there was continuity and I was on the right track and my my universe made sense and and it was cohesive and if I didn't have that, then I would have to look here, I'd have to look there, I'd have to go in my closet and look in a shoebox. I would have to Right. And I would just like get burnt out after like the first story. Right. And so it it's absolutely necessary. I exactly. That's yeah. Brilliant. You know, there's um have you heard of Scrivener? It's a it's a writing Scrivener. tool. It's um it's for writing stories. Mostly authors use it. But it's interesting because they have a character sheet, a template built right into Scrivener and it's a really cool um software for for writing stories. And I think it sounds like you learned some of this from video and film as well. You really have to create worlds and characters and like a character sheet would have, you know, the the character's name, their role in the story, their occupation, their physical description, maybe, you know, tips and tricks about their personality or habits or mannerisms, Hmm. where they're from, their background, internal conflicts, external conflicts. And they have this built right into Scrivener as called a character sheet and you can make these templates but i think as an artist it's brilliant to have that as well to have this sort of organized character visual character sheet and storyline yeah i wish i knew about scrivener before <laughs> well now you <laughs> do i just sort of made it up yeah now i do thank you <laughs> and i wish i had written a book on world building because i had to learn everything on my own well you should by reading and do it and a lot of people are writing it now. It's becoming more um, of a everyday word, like more um, less of a buzzword now, just like a word that people use every day. Yeah. And kicking myself for not making a book because I teach a whole semester class on it, which could be a whole year easily. And uh, it's just there's so Bad, much information. John, it's never too late. It's never too yeah. late. <laughs> and you know what? You have the academic perspective. So there's always that. I think that That's right. you know, as a teacher, what's interesting is that we learn so much from teaching and the organization that you have to do in order to put together a class adds an extra level or component of organization to to anything. I, I really do think it adds something special. It does. Yeah. So we talked about art. We talked about product. We talked about presentation. We've talked about educating your audience with stories. And we're kind of in the thick of automating and amplifying, although we went off on a tangent with world building. but Let's talk just real briefly here as we're coming towards the end of the podcast about how to amplify and avoid overwhelm. Like <laughs> you mentioned you go to a lot of conferences and to to get your nose out of the phone and not do a whole bunch of social media, but it seems like an inevitability. It seems unavoidable that we as artists have to do our own social outreach. Do you have any tips or tricks or automations that you use to follow up with people like me or you know people you meet or what do you do i wish i had a secretary for that or like an assistant <laughs> or, or even an intern don't we it's, all it's like a second job it is 
No, I used to show at a Haven Gallery in New York, and something happened. Uh, I think there was like an international artist there, and, and maybe there's some sharing going on of my work or something when she got back home. But I don't know. My social media blew up, and then I could, I didn't have time anymore to to respond. It was just so so much coming in. There, there's so many comments coming in, and so many mm. things. It was good problem it's a, to it's have. A good, good problem to have. But then I said, I never had this problem before. This is this is hard because I don't want to let anyone down. I don't want to seem like I'm like aloof or I like I ignore people. Right. But on the other hand, I just don't have enough time in the day to respond to people and and put in likes and answer people's questions and help people because I'm I'm doing that full time as a professor here. Yeah. And any free chance I get, I'm answering emails uh, from students or my advisees right. or something, or for from clients. Yeah. And 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 for freelance and, and and emails to my co-author and my attorney, whatever. But and then and then there's social media on top of that. Right. So um, it's very very overwhelming and daunting, and it, and it became a problem that I never thought I would have. Right. It's good to have, but. So how'd you tackle it? What'd you do? So now, I guess I was lucky enough that it sort of settled down, and I don't have as much anymore. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, I continued to respond to everyone. There was, I just, I just had to take a little more time, I guess. Um, like I used to respond the same day or the next day, but now it takes me a couple of days mm-hmm. to um, respond to someone who, you know, likes an image or talks about an image or something mm-hmm. like that. It's, just, it's great. And um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm still trying to figure it out actually <laughs> um, because it's very new for me and yeah. um, social media is great. Don't get me wrong. And I, you know, I just, uh, I yeah. think it's extremely important um, to keep up. My advice would be to to keep it up no matter what. To keep talking to people and responding to people and yeah. and yeah. being cordial and friendly and and to not ignore people uh, because uh, social media is such an important part of marketing. Yeah. Um. Now, which was wasn't really anything for me when when I got out of school because we didn't have all these uh, social media platforms yeah. like Instagram and Facebook was just something that college students had to. to yeah, to play. Show pictures of, of red solo cups and things. <laughs> to play, yeah. Now it's for old people, apparently, according to my students. <laughs> but right. we're old. Now it's like, forget it. Like, if you don't have Snapchat, you're not cool. <laughs> and like, if you're not on Twitter or you're not on this or that, um, yeah. it's just, I have to get with it. I, and, I, and I eventually did. And I got on Instagram. And, and now I have two Instagram pages, one for my side project and one for Astro Mythos. Yeah, yeah. And um, I keep up with it every day. I check it every day. And I make sure that I respond to um, all my fans and to um, help them if they have any questions. Tell them exactly how I do this or that. Wow, um, I have a lot so of guilt. Nice of you, the most questions I get are about my gilding process. Mm-hmm. So I'll tell people um, about the gilding, or I'll get questions about the story, like what, what's this character's name? I really love this illustration. Tell me more about the story. And right, I try not to like give out any spoilers, but I, you know, <laughs> I. I I do my best to to respond to everyone. I still, I'm yeah. still trying to figure out like a streamlined system of of um, how to do it faster or better or well, you ever more look probably. at Hootsuite? Hootsuite's one where it allows you to monitor multiple social media channels. So huh. Hootsuite is a real popular one. Um, it allows you to track mentions and respond to everything in one place, so you can do all that. There's also, I've been using Meet Egger for posting, which is nice because it creates a queue and you can put in things. So I entered like 365 quotes from different artists and then it'll post a quote for me every day. And I only had to do it once. Sure, it took, you know, hours to set up, but it'll rotate through them 
And, you know, you can post from your blog or whatever. And then for people that don't want to spend money, because both Hootsuite and Meet Egger cost a little bit of money, um, there's some new options like um, Boomerang in Gmail, which allows you to save your email responses as templates. So like if you write a little paragraph and you've got something that you always say about gilding, you can save that. And then anytime somebody sends you an email, you can send them that little snippet about gilding or whatever. So that's a free option. So there's a couple options for for people listening. Um, And, you know, while I'm talking about all this, you guys, we will put down below when this episode is aired all the different links and different things that we've talked about in the podcast. Hey, you mentioned you go to a lot of different conferences. Can you rattle off some of your favorite conferences to go to as an illustrator? Since we're talking about automating and amplifying, that's really how you connect with your audience, isn't it? And definitely. My, my favorite is um, Gen Con. Gen Con. Gen Con in Indianapolis. It's uh, Dungeons and Dragons was created by um, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, I believe. And um, it's the biggest tabletop game convention and card game convention in North America. Oh, wow. And um, I got in last year and I went and I was just, my jaw just dropped. There was 80,000 people there. Wow. Uh, it was the biggest thing I've ever seen. Um, and I'm, I'm told they're actually bigger conventions, which is insane. But I loved it. I didn't want to leave. I wanted to <laughs> you know, just go there. I just wanted to live there. <laughs> and um, I did very, very well there. So you had a booth. I had a booth mm-hmm. in the art show. Uh, the people who ran the art show put me next to exactly who I requested. And I had a lot of nice. fun. I was right next to my buddy Omar Rayan and, and Ralph Horsley. And uh, I loved it. And I, uh, I was lucky enough to win Best in Show there. Oh, wow. And that was my, the first major award I've ever won in my life. So I, was, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and I was like freaking out. And it was just uh, incredible. And um, that's probably my favorite show. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely going back here, uh, back next year as a juror. Oh. Nice. Congrats. Yeah, they asked me too. So that, that was nice because yeah. they didn't have to ask me twice. <laughs> and um, FerryCon, I've been doing for a number of years. I, I regrettably couldn't go this year because I was so busy and there's, there's so much happening all at once. Mm-hmm. But I, I love that because it's, it's basically like an indoor renaissance fair and uh, mostly a tribute to uh, fans of um, Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and oh, the, you know, the work fan. of the, the three frouds, mm-hmm. like Wendy, Brian, and Toby. Mm-hmm. And that's where they became friends of mine, and, and that's where I met Omar, and that's where I met Ted Nasmith and, and Iris Compiet, who was also at AluxCon, who are now you know really good illustrator friends of mine. And I looked up to I looked up to these people when when I was little because I was watching you know Brian Froud's movies and and Wendy's uh you know, Wendy worked on the Yoda puppet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was watching her movies and Brian's movies, and then um, and Toby as a little baby in Labyrinth. Yeah, and. Then Back not to hang baby. out with Toby and get some drinks with him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> dance, magic, dance. Dance, magic, dance. David Bowie was the one who did all Toby's voices because to- Toby uh, just, I guess, wouldn't respond, which is funny. I didn't know that until I didn't know recently. That. That's cool. And it was, it was cool for me as an illustrator to like get that reward. That's another, I mean, we talked about that earlier. That's another a reward is to meet my, my heroes and to meet the people that I saw on the screen when I was little yeah. and and you know, before the school bus came into that circle is like that's just magical. Yeah, like having drinks with a little baby from Labyrinth who's now my age. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, uh partying with uh 
you know, one of the Hensons and, and with oh uh, Wendy Froud um, at, a, at one of the, the Labyrinth Balls, which is like the masquerade in the movie yeah. at Fairy Con. Oh, so that's why that's one of my favorites because it's just like, you know, you get to be yourself and, and everyone likes the same things. And yeah. Same thing at Gen Con. And so those three, LuxCon, Gen Con, and Fairy Con are my my biggest, most uh, favorite shows. Yeah. But I also, um, you know, just recently I did Artisticon in Philly. Okay. And um, just all sorts me. of other small shows. Well, I'm going to Philly in, de- in December for PAX. <laughs> so PAX? maybe I'll see you there. P-A-X. Uh, PAX, PAX Unplugged. It's a it's a smaller board game um, convention. Um, it's growing in popularity. And I'm very excited to go because, uh, you know, I've heard many, many good things about it. Uh, right in Philly. Up. I didn't know. And uh, there's a lot of uh, illustrators and board game creators there and board game writers and uh, just the community of tabletop gaming. That's why it's called PAX Unplugged. Pa- the regular PAX is for video games, and that's uh, mm-hmm. somewhere else. It's, that's not in Philly. But uh, those are the big ones. And then I do like little gallery shows here and there, some mm-hmm. solo shows, some group shows. Um, I showed at Haven Gallery in Northport. And, now, yeah, John, I, I got to gotta ask you a personal question, but we do that on this podcast. <laughs> is how do you budget for these things? So, okay, going to a conference costs a lot of money. We all know this. But it's where you make the best contacts and the best networking. Now, I know that you sell originals there, but you also sell prints, and now you've got a book. So let's just talk real briefly about product ladders and about product uh, pricing, and how do you budget all that in? Like, you don't have to give us specifics. You can give us ranges or whatever, but how do you um, fit that in? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, not just time-wise, but financially. Right. Um well, it definitely trips? helps that I'm a teacher. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was a lot harder. Yeah, of course. When I was adjunct and um, and um, even before when I was going to small-time shows like Open Studios in Connecticut and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So you started out small. That's good. Yeah, uh, it was more affordable. And I would just bring like, you know, 30 prints or something, maybe 20. Mm-hmm. And just a couple paintings. I always bring originals because, you know, I want people to see the the impact that the originals have on them and to see the gold yeah. leaf because it doesn't reproduce well yeah no it's gorgeous and it's so shiny but, and ugh, it's just eye-catching thank you <laughs> at, at first when i first signed up for something like uh Eluxcon, and i saw the the bill or the fees for the tables mm-hmm. um i didn't know that that was standard you know and that's what that's that's just what it is yeah it's it like, just blew my mind i was like how do i afford that thousand dollars like, right it's uh for a booth there it's uh about six hundred fifty dollars, mm-hmm. and then um, and yeah. it's by size and corner. I mean, this is standard with all conferences, business conferences it's, too. You know, it's like anywhere yeah. from like six hundred dollars to like six thousand dollars, depending on placement, size, location, blah blah blah. Right. Right. Um, if you want a big booth, you pay twice as much. Or if yep. you want to be on the first floor at LuxCon, you pay a couple hundred more, two fifty more. Yeah. Uh, for instance. You pay a lot less to be in the showcase, which is, um, you know, um, the the smaller show. Yep, yep. But the main show is very expensive, but very worth it. And um, I was just lucky um, because by the time I, I showed it at LuxCon or was interested in it, I was asked to to go there by my friends and my guild, mm-hmm. WMIG. I could afford it because I was teaching and I knew that I would make money there because I had done other shows like FairyCon. And I was a little spoiled because the first time I was invited to FerryCon, they, they gave me a, a free ride. Like I got the whole thing. I got the oh, hotel nice. and, and the table for free Sweet. Uh, because I was a guest of honor. 
Wow. So um, I was a little spoiled so that when I saw how much a table actually costs, I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> This is something else, all right. So do you do any math in advance? Like, do you look at your work and say, I need to take this much work and like, I need to sell this much work to pay for the conference? Do you ever business this out? Yeah, I used to, down to the, like down to the dollar, down to the, you know, maybe um, down to like $10 mark. Mm -hmm. I used to do all my finances, like the pros and the cons, how much money I need to spend on getting there Mm -hmm. and on um, rooming there Mm -hmm. and how much money I, I would potentially make based on, of my successes in other shows in previous years. Mm-hmm. And now I got, I got to the point where I don't really have to worry about that um, okay. because I sell enough pieces to, to make a profit, maybe a little, maybe a lot. Mm-hmm. But um, before, absolutely, I would, I would stay in a hotel room with, with several people. Mm-hmm. And that's how uh, my, my friends, um, Scott Murphy, uh, said he did it. He's a, a Magic the Gathering and D&D illustrator mm-hmm. um, who lives in Massachusetts. He said um, he and his friends go there and they get a room, and the the four of them stay in that room. So they split it four ways. Yep. So that's that's the first way that I saved money going to Eluxcon the first year, yeah. uh, three years ago. Um, I just split it with a couple other illustrators, and uh, we saved a lot of money. And um, but when you're there, you end up spending a lot of money on on meals and things and and lunches because yeah. you can't get away from your table during the day. So yeah. there's all sorts of expenses, and um, they include framing, yep. uh, the hotel, the table. Yep. Yeah, paying for um, sleeves, transportation, uh-huh. backing boards, sleeves, prints, yeah. um, new business cards, banners, yeah. easels, table easels, all sorts of uh, expenses that, that factor in, but that don't have you don't have to purchase them eventually because then you build up a stock and then you yeah eventually you own all this stuff so you don't have to keep buying it you just bring the same things that you own like you know same table easels the same mm-hmm. tablecloths the same banners so it's an investment. It's it's a big, big, big investment that's absolutely worth it if you know that um, people find your work exciting and if you know that people will continue to buy your prints yeah. and originals. And it started with the prints, you know, just a few prints at some open studios in Connecticut, like I said, like yeah. in Winstead, Whiting Mills. Yeah. And then um, people started asking about buying originals. And I would go to these shows and look at the prices and look at how other artists and illustrators price their pieces. Mm-hmm. And I would say, okay, I could price my my pieces a little less than that, or or maybe you know, like similar to what they're pricing, and mm-hmm. um, hopefully sell something. And then eventually, I did, and I said, okay, that's a good price. I'll use that. And then that's another uh, really uh, difficult thing to to master or to grasp about of these shows is how to price your original work. Yeah, because it changes from show to show. Mm. You can't charge um, an arm and a leg for a pieces at a small time show because no one will buy anything. Yeah. But you can charge um, a reasonable price and, and what it's actually worth at the big shows because people will, will pay for pieces. Collectors will buy the pieces for what they're worth. Right. So you have to sort of like charge a lot less and, and less than what the pieces are worth if you go to like small-time festivals or trade mm-hmm. shows and things. Mm-hmm. So you need to know what your show is and what you're taking and what it's worth because you don't want to let one of your really, really good pieces go at a small show for not what it's worth and lose out. Right, exactly. And and what people don't understand is that selling those pieces, that goes to your bills or that goes to the, you know, the fees that you pay for the table and that helps you get home. Yeah. You know that I've even had some artists come up to me um and then some performers at, at like shows like Fairycon saying, "Hey, can can you buy can you buy an album off of me uh, because, you know, that this pays for the gas to get home because we live in Canada or something." And that that's a that's a big part of it. So it's Yeah. 
you know, it's just something it's, it's necessary for us to charge a reasonable price or so that we can like, yeah. you know, continue to come to these shows yeah. and, and make good work. And, yeah. Definitely. Hey, you mentioned a guild, WMIG. You want to expand on that just real briefly? WMIG is the Western Massachusetts Illustrators Guild. So, um, did you start everyone that lives- or you're part of it? I became a member, um, I think about five, eight, five to eight years ago, five to six years ago. Cool. And um, it's it's a guild of uh, illustrators who live in Western Mass and places like uh, you know like Deerfield and Hatfield and Otis and uh, East Hampton, Northampton. Mm-hmm. And they're all children's book and fantasy uh, sci-fi illustrators. Cool. So some are graphic novelists, some work for Wizards of the Coast, some um, are award-winning illustrators. Even authors come to the meetings. And uh, there's some people who work for Lego in there. And, and so it's a, it's a guild of um, all sorts of different illustrators who live in that area. I'm the only one from Connecticut because there's no Connecticut Illustrators Guild. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to start that up with my students and trying to you know, coax yeah. them into starting their own. But yeah, it's, it's, um, I've made um, lifelong friends there and, and uh, we do all sorts of things together. This weekend, we're you know, playing board games together in East Hampton. And um, yeah, Joining a guild is is one of the best pieces of advice I could give if there's a guild in you know one of the listeners' areas. Yeah, because uh, it's a great place to bring work and get good feedback from uh, people who have been doing it for forty years plus. Uh, most of the a lot of members are seventy, sixty, mm-hmm. and there's only a few of us that are like you know in our thirties or right. maybe late twenties, and uh, we get uh, leads for jobs, connections, just like advice on contracts. It's it's everything um, about being in a guild is, is beneficial um, for illustrators yeah. and even author illustrators too. Good advice. Good advice. All right. So finally, we come to success. We've talked about art. We've talked about product. We've talked about presentation. We've talked about educating through story, automating and amplifying. We talked about licensing and contracts. How do you measure success? How do you, do you, do you stop? And measure your successes because I think it's really easy for us artists to just go from one thing to the next without stopping and appreciating and sharing because I think we tend to be very humble sometimes. We don't want to brag. Right. What are you most proud of and, and how, do you, how do you measure your success? I think the first time I felt successful was when people reached out to me for work. Like people asked, just emailed me and I'd I just stopped looking for jobs because people would just ask me to work on things, mm, either flattering. at conventions yeah. or they would find me through WMIG or they would find me um, on my website and they would ask me to do a commission or they would ask me to um, illustrate something for uh, some of our assets for their for their game or their book. Mm-hmm. And then um, at that point when I had to um, also like start turning down jobs because too much were coming in, then mm-hmm. I said, maybe I'm successful now. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is a good thing, I guess. So- I tell my students that if, if you get to that point and um, you're getting requests from, you know, publishers or small time press or whoever, you know, clients, then that's, I guess that's success. That's a sign of success that you're yeah. doing something right. But um, I don't know. I'm really hard on myself. So I still <laughs> think I'm, I'm like eons away from being like the best artist I could possibly possibly be. And I think that comes from teaching art history for three years because I, I learned everything about you know modern Asian art, Western art. I saw so much art that I'm like comparing myself to the, the greats. I think that that is something that we all do. I think every artist looks at other people, artists, others, artists, and just goes, oh my God, I could never be that good. Or I want to be that good. I need to work harder. 
certainly I came away from Iluxcon like, oh my God. <laughs> all yeah. right, it's all been done. <laughs> Pretty much. I can't compete. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to measure. I mean, it starts there when, when you start getting requests uh, to work on things and when you have to start turning down really great jobs and you regret turning them down. Like I just had to turn down a, a cover, a, a book cover um, commission from a major game company and, uh, and it wasn't easy. I told them because I just don't have, I just don't have the time. I'm just working on so many other commissions and my own book, the teaching, this, that, right. and I have to make everyone in my life happy too. Yeah, I can't just be a hermit like I used to be when I was single. And- <laughs> And that was a big part of it too. Um, I owe much of my success to trying to, you know, stay single and um, produce as much work as possible for a, a long period of time. Mm-hmm. I was very unhappy and very uh, isolated and alone, but it was all worth it. You know, as a give mm-hmm. and take, it's you know mostly growing pains and mm-hmm. you know uh, those sorts of things. But um, it is much it was definitely worth to it. Great when you have a family. Yeah, it's it's, and I, I'm the kind of person where that wants to give as much time as possible to uh, the people in my life. So yeah. I wanted to do that before, you know, things got a little more complicated or well, I, I, you know, before I got more friends and before I got more significant, uh, like a significant other. And yeah. So that, you know, I didn't lose the, the what's the most important to me, which is my friends and family. Right. That's and um, so. Very logical of you. That was uh, not easy. And it's something that I didn't plan on doing. It just sort of happened. It was natural. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, But anyway, I think that led to my uh, success. And just working hard every day, no matter what, even if you don't feel like drawing or you know, painting that specific day, um, if you push yourself in and um, just work anyway, then that's, that's a sign of success too because that means you're producing and um, producing – quickly and producing a lot of work and 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 just um, producing exciting work is 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 basically the key if anything takes away from that then it's a little hard to be successful uh, actually very hard to be successful yeah but uh, a sign of success uh, for me uh, recently was was yeah that award at Gen con and um, I mean I, I still think like so many other artists were so brilliant there and so many other artists deserved it but then I find out that they had they had won the award previous years, and I was like, okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and you can only win it once, so that was a big sign of success for me, and and that really like propelled my career and and helped me get a better teaching positions and things like that. And yeah, in the long run, I think that was a a great landmark for me, or momentous Wonderful. thing for me. And well, yeah, I hope I'm just you celebrated it to its fullest. <laughs> I did. I'm continuing um, um, to celebrate it, but I'm not. I'm trying not to rest on my laurels. That's the other key to success. Yeah, definitely. I'm trying to continue to produce even better work every year. Mm-hmm. One of one of my professors at Iluxcon, um came. You know, I told you their contact periods in my grad program. Mm-hmm. This time they came to Philly, so they they drove over to Iluxcon in Reading to spend the day there. Yeah. And uh, one of my professors was talking to me and said, "Your your grad school pieces are great." But your or your new work should be even better than your grad school pieces. Yeah. And the work you produce this year will be awesome, but next year it should be even better. And you should con- constantly grow as an artist. And yeah. something I found that that helped that is uh, being a teacher actually, and and mm. studying all sorts of different techniques, uh, studying art history, studying new techniques, learning uh, new materials, buying new materials, 
and and um, just experimenting and dabbling with everything, which is something I do uh, every year. I learn a new medium every year oh, or two, cool. um, and that informs my work, and that makes me a better artist. That enables me to um, combine different you know, mediums and techniques into my own style and, and visual language. Yeah, and that sort of furthers my my artwork and my my I guess my search for a for a, a unique style. Yeah, and I think it you know keeps that style unique and, and, and keeps my artwork fresh. And um, it's one of the most important things, not not to sort of get caught in a rut and not to rest on your laurels, even after winning an award or yeah. after like, you know, um, doing some awesome commission. Yeah. What's that quote about you got to show up and do the work? Uh, there's a great famous quote. Oh, I can't remember. Something about like 90% perspiration. <laughs> you just show oh, up. Yeah. You got to show yeah. up and do the work. So in closing, I always love to ask people for book recommendations because I'm a total bibliophile. I am, I love books. I love books. And so are there any books you would recommend? This might be dangerous because I'm, I'm sitting here looking at my bookshelf <laughs> in my office. I could give you how many? Like maybe five, ten? Sure. Five to ten? <laughs> Rattle them off. We'll put links down below. No. Someone like me, I, I collect uh, how to write books and how to draw books uh -huh. and all sorts of different collections of artwork. Yeah. Uh, so I'll give you maybe half and half, I guess. Sure. For instance, uh, something I just brought into class is, is called How to Draw by Scott Robertson. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, the book is called How to Draw. And then he has a second book called How to Render. And these books cover all sorts of things um, like shadow perspective and curvilinear perspective, drawing um, concept art for video games, mm. uh, concept art for films for a drawing for illustration it's 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 a it's applied perspective and drawing skills for anyone who wants to get into like imaginative realism or, or gaming or you know sci-fi fantasy film yeah i love that term imaginative realism i hadn't heard that one before for this genre and i learned that at a LuxCon and i was like oh i like that <laughs> yeah that's the uh, james gurney james gurney term that he used for his book um imaginative realism that's another book that I recommend that I have all my uh, students purchase. Mm -hmm. And it's it, it's actually pretty similar to this podcast. He, he covers like his process, you know, uh, how he shoots reference photos, how, you know, you, you get certain jobs, how you set up your studio, how you do this and that, oh, and everything you need to know one. about being an illustrator. It's, it's, it's a absolutely necessary. I think every illustrator should have that in, on their shelf. And he produced a second book called Color and Light, uh, which discusses all sorts of like uh, different you know color theory topics and um, how to use light how to paint light sweet another book that i'd recommend is the the hero with a thousand faces by joseph campbell got that one i, I love that book monomyth came up mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. bruno bettelheim's uses of enchantment mm. which is a, a big collection of uh, fairy tale interpretations Ooh. which really really helped me write characters and viewpoint Mm -hmm. uh, characters and Viewpoint by Orson Scott Card helped me write my character and my narrator and my Viewpoint character. I didn't know Orson Scott Card did a, did a more nonfiction. That's cool. Yeah, and he also wrote a book called How to Write Fantasy and Science Fiction, which is as uh, useful. Robert Henry's The Art Spirit uh, is another one. And um, The Artist and Graphic Designers Market, which is a book that uh, I read right after I graduated college, mm -hmm. undergrad, uh, for cover to cover. I'm sure you've you've heard of it. Oh yeah, you I have that it. one. Yeah, um, the handbook of pricing and ethical guidelines, oh, which yeah. is a big book of how to price everything. Yeah, that one's a good one. And um, let's see, the education of an illustrator, which is something I read uh, in grad school, and I still have it to this day, and it helps me, you know, uh, with my you know 
pedagogy in my curriculum and my classes. Hmm. Um, the artist, Ralph Mayer's The Artist's Handbook. It's a com- basically a complete definitive collection of, uh, well, not for things like acrylic gouache and, and newer material, but um, a description of all sorts of different techniques and materials um, that artists have at their disposal and that artists need to know. Like mm. it, it tells, tell you how to, tells you how to paint with oils. It tells you how to use pencils, inks, and mm. uh, di- talks about different substrates and things. Yeah. And, and so on. And um, I'd say uh, those are some of the most important books I have on the shelf. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I could list off more, but I don't want to no, no, you know, be on the right. run line all day. That is all right. I think that's a good starting point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very cool. Well, John, this has been such a pleasure talking to you. I think we got a really neat perspective um, on illustration and illustrative realism, imaginative realism. Just so cool. I want to thank you. Thank you so much for oh. joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> no problem. Well, that's it for the Artist Appeals. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed recording it. I just love talking with all these artists and business people. It's phenomenal, and I've learned so much. I hope you've learned something, too. You can get more information. You can check out some of the links that we talked about in these podcasts at the Artist appeals.com that's the artist appeals a p p e a l s.com thanks and have a good one <laughs>